Chapter 8, Part 2 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885 to 1905, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Storm and Stress, Part 2. No sooner, however, had the Wilson Bill become a law than preparations were made by the Treasury to collect the tax which Senator Hill had so energetically denounced. The necessary blanks and other papers were printed, and the collecting officers began their distribution. Opposition to the measure was no less prompt. Several test cases were prepared. Note 14, page 370. These cases presently reached the Supreme Court, where they were argued at length and, to anticipate, a partial decision was rendered on April 8, 1895. The court pronounced that part of the law unconstitutional which taxed values derived from land and from state or municipal bonds. But a final decision on the law as a whole was deferred, owing to the absence of Mr. Justice Jackson, who was ill. A few weeks later, however, Justice Jackson, having recovered, rendered his opinion so that the decision as finally handed down by a full bench pronounced the income tax unconstitutional as being a direct tax. Note 15. The court was divided five to four. Note 16. 15 and 16, page 370. There were circumstances connected with this decision which caused deep feeling throughout the country. It had been long since a case before the Supreme Court had attracted such general attention. A brilliant array of counsel had submitted arguments, among them ex-Senator Edmonds, Mr. James C. Carter, Mr. Joseph H. Choate, and the Attorney General himself. The final judgment, as given on May 20th, carried with it a reversal of an earlier judgment handed down fifteen years before. In 1880, the Supreme Court had decided, note 17, page 371, with no dissenting opinion that an income tax on rents is not a direct tax, within the meaning of the Constitution, but an excise tax, and hence permitted to the general government. That the Supreme Court should reverse a decision which had stood for fifteen years was a very unusual occurrence. Note 18, page 371. That it should reverse, by a majority of only one, a decision which had been unanimously reached was still more remarkable. Yet this was not all. On April 8th, Mr. Justice Sherris had been favorable to the constitutionality of the law. Had he not altered his view, the opinion of Mr. Justice Jackson on May 20th would have made the court stand five to four in support of the income tax. But Justice Sherris in the interval had gone over to the other side, and so the result already described was ultimately reached. In expressing their dissent from the decision of the majority of the court, Justice Harlan and Justice White departed wholly from the impassive and impersonal manner which is usual in that high tribunal, and spoke in terms of marked feeling. Mr. Justice Harlan, indeed, let it be plainly seen that he believed the court to have dealt a severe blow at the stability and safety of American political institutions. Note 19, pages 371 and 372. In this he struck a note which was echoed all over the land, but most of all throughout the West and South. Men said that the influences which had crippled tariff reform in the Senate had proved no less powerful in the highest tribunal of the nation. Populism grew daily stronger, while other events which were coincident with those already told stimulated the new movement and enhanced its power. The slow progress of the Wilson Bill, prolonging as it did the feeling of uncertainty in the business world, had depressed all forms of industry. Thousands of men who had been thrown out of work in the summer and autumn of 1893 found themselves at the beginning of winter wholly destitute. 
Some of them had left their homes in the eastern states and had gone to the Pacific coast as railway builders. They now turned their faces homeward, intending to tramp the long distance and to live upon the charity of the intervening towns and cities. These men were presently joined by others who were out of work, and finally by swarms of professional vagabonds and tramps. Through some curious psychological impulse, the notion of a general crusade of squalor spread all through the country, and from every quarter of the West and the Southwest, bands of ragged, hungry, homeless men appeared, fierce of aspect and terrifying to the people of the hamlets and sparsely settled districts through which they passed. Theft, rape, and sometimes murder marked the trail of this new jacquerie, which had at first no conscious purpose as it had no leader. Both purpose and leader were presently provided. Three odd fanatics came to the front and after a fashion took command of the roving bands. These three, Coxie, Kelly, and Fry, styling themselves generals, led the largest groups which were now known as armies of the unemployed and later as industrials and commonwheelers. Coxie was the most conspicuous of the three. He had a definite plan of action. He organized what he styled the Army of the Common Wheel of Christ, and with it he intended to march on Washington, to enter the Capitol, and to overawe Congress into passing a law providing for the unemployed. His demand was that $500 million in irredeemable paper money should be issued, and that this sum should be spent in improving the public highways throughout the country. Such became at last the declared purpose of all the common wheelers, and so the three armies began their march to Washington from different points, Coxie setting out from Massillon, Ohio on March 25th, Fry from Los Angeles, California early in April, and Kelly from San Francisco on April 26th. There was something grotesque and also something very pitiful in the purpose of these poor men, many of whom were honest and well-meaning, but who were driven to desperation by poverty and cold and hunger. Yet among them were also many criminals and vicious characters, so that again and again the industrials came into conflict with the police, and sometimes even with the militia, which was called to arms in several states because of them. The newspapers made much of Coxey's army, and naturally viewing its march on Washington as a huge joke, began to humor the idea and to treat it with mock seriousness. Hence, in Europe, where American humor, if unlabeled, is seldom understood, the belief spread that the United States had fallen into anarchy. The Republic was to be overthrown by a great uprising of its own citizens. The movement of Coxey's prowling tramps upon Washington was gravely likened to the famous march of the mob from Paris to Versailles. English leader-writers waited solemnly for the crash of a widespread and terrible revolution. Coxey and his followers straggled into Washington on April 28th. By that time their numbers had been reduced to about 300 men. The mild spring weather had led most of the army to roam off as individuals into the pleasant country valleys where they could bask in the sunshine and live by begging. On the 1st of May, however, Coxey marched his dwindling host into the grounds of the capital, bearing aloft some improvised banners of calico and paper muslin. But by this time public interest in the industrials had waned. The joke had ceased to amuse, and therefore no particular notice was taken of Coxey until he and some of his lieutenants marched across the lawns when the capital police at once arrested them for walking on the grass. Such was the farcical end of the Coxey Crusade, which foreigners regarded as a dreadful menace to the Republic, but which terminated in a short jail sentence served for the violation of a local ordinance by the would-be Robespierre. 
while however this pilgrimage of the common wheelers was in itself of no importance it did reveal a state of restlessness in the industrial world this was soon to find expression in a tremendous struggle of organized labor against organized capital a struggle of which the outcome was at last determined by the unprecedented action of mr cleveland and his attorney-general it involved questions both administrative judicial and constitutional of far-reaching consequence in eighteen eighty six the capitalists who controlled or owned the twenty-four railways which then entered the city of chicago had formed a voluntary association known as the general managers association note twenty page three seventy five this body had for its main purpose the effective and arbitrary control of all persons employed by the railways represented in the association wages were cut down according to a general agreement discharged workmen were blacklisted so that they could not easily get new employment with no standing whatever in law the managers association was establishing a complete control of the independence and even of the livelihood of thousands of railway employees note twenty one page three seventy six to offset this combination of the owners the men had organized in eighteen ninety three the american railway union the two bodies antagonistic as they were in their special interests came into conflict early in eighteen ninety four over a question which did not in its origin directly concern either of them the pullman palace car company was not a railway corporation but was engaged in manufacturing cars which had operated through written contracts with the railways it was a highly prosperous concern and mr pullman its president had won much commendation from philanthropic sociologists for having built the pretty little village of pullman near chicago where employees of the company could at moderate rentals find houses that were clean well lighted and supplied with admirable sanitary arrangements lakes parks and well-kept streets made the place appear to be a poor man's paradise on the other hand those who lived in pullman saw another side not many residents stayed there long while they stayed they seemed to be under a singular constraint if they spoke of the company they did so in half a whisper and with a furtive glance behind them very much as a russian might mention the czar note twenty two page three seventy six every one felt that he was spied upon and that an incautious word might lead to his discharge and get his name upon the blacklist in may eighteen ninety four the pullman company dismissed a large number of its workmen the wages of such as were retained were lowered by some twenty per cent many were now employed for less than what was usually regarded as full time a committee of employees waited upon mr pullman to ask that the old wages be restored mr pullman refused this request but promised that he would not punish any member of the committee for having presented the petition this promise he apparently violated for on the very next day three of the committee were discharged mr pullman in fact evidently regarded himself as a personage so sacrosanct as to make even a respectful petition to him a serious offence indignant at his action five six of his men went out on strike mr pullman promptly discharged the other six who had remained faithful to his interests to justify the pullman management a general statement was given out on its behalf that the close of the columbian exposition and the existing business depression had checked the demand for its cars that it had been employing men at an actual loss that it could not afford to continue them at work and at the old scale of wages in reply to this the fact was pointed out that while the wages of the men had been cut the salaries of the officers remained as large as ever and that rents in the town of pullman had not been lowered moreover the stock of the company was selling above par 
its dividends for the preceding year on a capital of $36 million had been $2,520,000, while it had a surplus of undivided profits amounting to $25 million. About 4,000 Pullman employees were members of the American Railway Union. In June, a convention of the union was held in Chicago, and this body took up the question of the Pullman strike, although the men on strike were not railway employees at all. A committee of the union wished to confer with the Pullman management, but were not allowed to do so. The Civic Federation of Chicago, with the approval and support of the mayors of 50 cities, urged the company to submit the matter to arbitration. The company answered, We have nothing to arbitrate. Then on June 2nd, the railway union, finding no settlement possible, passed a resolution to the effect that unless the Pullman Company should come to an agreement with its men before June 26, the members of the railway union would refuse to handle Pullman cars. The company remained obdurate, and therefore on the 26th the union fulfilled its promise. From that day on, all the roads running out of Chicago, no train to which Pullman cars were attached could move. The president of the railway union was Mr. Eugene V. Debs. He had formerly been a locomotive engineer and afterwards a grocer. Going into politics, he had served a term in the Indiana legislature. He was a very shrewd, long-headed strategist. He understood the strength of his organization. He was equally well aware of the one weak point in all the great labor demonstrations of the past. The 150,000 men whom he controlled could, by acting together, completely paralyze the railway system centering at Chicago. Local public sentiment was, on the whole, favorable to the Pullman employees. That sentiment would, however, be alienated if violence and general disorder were to follow on the strike. It was vital that the railway union should employ no lawless means. Mr. Debs, therefore, issued an address on June 29th in which he said, The contest is now on between the railway corporations united solidly on the one hand and the labor forces on the other. I appeal to the strikers everywhere to refrain from any act of violence. A man who will destroy property or violate law is an enemy and not a friend of the cause of labor. The order of Mr. Debs was implicitly obeyed by the members of the railway union, and the peaceable strike which was begun on the 26th proved at once to be remarkably effective. Switchmen refused to attach Pullman cars to any train. When they were discharged for this, the rest of the train's crew left it in a body. By the end of the fifth day after the strike began, all the roads running out of Chicago were practically at a standstill. The Railway Managers Association was facing absolute defeat. Its resources in the way of men were exhausted, and its trains could not be operated. Yet all this had been accomplished by peaceable means. There was no sign of violence or disorder. But the men who made up the Managers Association were very able. They had at their command unlimited money and legal advisers who could conceive daring plans. This struggle against the power of the railways meant to them a struggle for existence. Their chairman, therefore, issued a bold statement in which he said, We are supported in our stand by the railway managers all over the United States. It is no time for weakness of policy. The fight must be won. It must have been plain to the managers that if the strike remained a peaceful one, the railways would be defeated. If, however, violence and crime were associated with it, public sympathy would no longer sustain the strikers, and the power of the law would be invoked against them. 
Singularly enough, on June 30th, just when this situation became very plain, disorder suddenly broke out in Chicago. The close of the World's Fair had left in that city a large residuum of vagabonds and semi-criminals who had drifted thither during the exposition and who remained to swell the lawless population of the slums. As is usual in times of widespread excitement, these men now swarmed by thousands to the railway yards intent upon prospective plunder. It was widely asserted at the time that the Managers' Association employed agents provocateurs to incite the disorderly elements to acts of violence. Of this there is no convincing proof. That thieves and bullies and jailbirds should seize upon so rare an opportunity for mischief was natural enough. But their sudden appearance was certainly most opportune for the railway managers and most fatal to the real interests of the strikers. On June 30th a mail train was stopped in the suburbs of Chicago. The engine was cut off and disabled by a mob ostensibly directed by strikers. At about the same time, the mails were completely obstructed on parts of the Southern Pacific system, the strike having extended to the Pacific states. Mail trains having Pullman cars attached were not allowed to run. This news brought the United States government into the field at once. Attorney General Olney issued vigorous instructions to the United States district attorneys all over the country. Deputy marshals were sworn in, and other precautionary measures were taken. Writing to Mr. Edwin Walker, who acted as special counsel for the government in Chicago, Mr. Olney made the novel suggestion that, instead of relying upon warrants issued under criminal statutes against persons who had actually committed illegal acts, Mr. Walker should apply to the federal courts for injunctions forbidding the commission of such acts. On July 1st, the roads were still paralyzed. Disorder had still for the most part been sporadic. There was no evidence that the local authorities were not fully competent to deal with the situation so far as the unruly elements were concerned. On the following day, however, on motion of the United States District Attorney, Judge Woods issued a sweeping injunction forbidding the president of the railway union, Mr. Debs, and also its vice president, secretary, and others from interfering with the transportation of the mails and from obstructing interstate commerce. Mr. Walker also sent word to Washington that in his judgment, United States troops would be needed to enforce the order of the court. On that very day, President Cleveland ordered General Miles to Chicago to assume personal command of the troops at Fort Sheridan. Mr. Walker seemed strangely insistent in his demand for troops and for their immediate use. Note 23, page 381. Mr. Olney telegraphed him, July 3rd. I trust use of United States troops will not be necessary. Mr. Walker reiterated his demand, and with him were joined Judge Grosscup, the District Attorney, and the United States Marshal. The strikers had indeed been deeply stirred by the injunction which forbade even an attempt to persuade railway employees to strike. They felt that the federal courts were the mere tools of the railway managers and were attempting to deprive men of the right to leave their work. Perhaps, because of their indignation at this new move, the peaceful strike came to an end, and a regime of violence began. Baggage cars were wrecked and strewn along the tracks, and a mail train was ditched. The writ of injunction was read to the mob by a marshal, but it was received with jeers and curses. That same afternoon, President Cleveland ordered Colonel Crofton in command at Fort Sheridan to enter Chicago with the entire garrison of infantry, artillery, and cavalry. This order was promptly carried out, and on the following morning the troops were in camp upon the lakefront. Reinforcements were hurried to them, and General Miles had presently at his disposal a force of several thousand men. 
A brigade of state militia was also ordered to the city by the governor at the mayor's request. The story of the next few days is one of perpetual disorder, controlled, however, or greatly lessened by the admirable work of the regular troops, whose cool firmness had that indescribable effect which discipline always exercises upon disorder. Yet there was much destruction of railway property, both within the city and near it, while the temper of the soldiers was often severely tried. The spirit of the mob grew more and more dangerous, and at last, on July 7th, General Miles issued an order to all officers in command of troops, directing them to fire upon persons engaged in overt hostile acts. Mr. Debs, whose prudence had begun to fail him, made an inflammatory address in which he said, The first shot fired by regular troops at the mobs here will be a signal for civil war. Bloodshed will surely follow. Events moved quickly. On the following day, the President issued a proclamation ordering all persons engaged in unlawful assemblages to disperse, on or before twelve o'clock noon of the ninth day of July instant. Those who disregarded the warning were to be viewed as public enemies. There will be no vacillation in the decisive punishment of the guilty. On that same day, a mob at Hammond, Indiana, some twenty miles distant from Chicago, set upon several non-strikers, killing one and wounding four. Matters grew still more serious, and a detachment of regular troops commanded by Major Hartz was hurried to the Monon station. Under their protection several trains were moved. This infuriated the mob which, after exhausting every form of insult, began to shower the soldiers with missiles. The troops remained unmoved, awaiting orders. Emboldened by this apparent timidity, their assailants, who now numbered fully three thousand, made a wild rush, intending to overwhelm the compact company in blue, Major Hartz gave a sharp command, and the magazine rifles spurted fire into the yelling mob, drilling it through and through with bullets and strewing the ground with dead. Coincidentally with these events, Judge Grosscup delivered a charge to a special federal grand jury, which at once found indictments against Debs and three of his associates, the charge being one of conspiracy under the Sherman Antitrust Law of 1890. On July 10th, the four men were arrested and gave bail in $10,000 each. On July 17th, the same men were brought before Judge Woods and were charged with contempt of court in having disobeyed the injunction of July 2nd. They refused to give bail upon this charge and were sent to prison under guard. This swift and stern action of the federal government broke the backbone of the strike, as Mr. Debs himself afterwards admitted. The movement in which the Knights of Labor had also taken part had spread over 27 states and territories and had affected the operations of 125,000 miles of railway. But everywhere it was dealt with in the same energetic manner whenever it obstructed the service of the mails, and after the arrest of Mr. Debs it died speedily away. On July 20th, less than a month after the general strike began, the United States troops left Chicago, their presence being no longer needed. Note 24 Page 384. In the opinion of the governor of Illinois, Mr. John P. Altgeld, their presence there had never been required. Mr. Altgeld was a democratic of the populistic type. In appearance, he resembled a typical German agitator, fanatical and intense. He had pardoned the anarchists who were sentenced to imprisonment at the time of the Haymarket murders in 1886. Note 25, page 384. Many persons regarded him as no better than an anarchist himself, yet this judgment was too harsh. His sympathies were undoubtedly with the strikers, and he felt with some reason that the presence of federal troops was essentially provocative. 
He read over the fourth article of the Constitution, which pledges the United States to guarantee to each state protection against domestic violence, on application of the legislature or of the executive. As Governor Altgeld interpreted that section, it meant that United States troops may be sent into a state only upon application of the legislature or of the executive. He therefore, immediately after the arrival of the troops in Chicago, telegraphed the President that they were not needed. Waiving all question of courtesy, I will say that the state of Illinois is not only able to take care of itself, but it stands ready today to furnish the federal government any assistance it may need elsewhere. As governor, I protest, and ask the immediate withdrawal of federal troops from active duty in the state. But Governor Altgeld had missed the point involved in the dispatch of troops. These had not been sent to protect the state of Illinois from domestic violence, but to guard the property of the United States, to prevent obstruction of the United States mails, and to enforce the judgments of the United States courts as against illegal combinations. Authority for this was found in the law of April 20, 1871. Note 26, page 385. The President answered Governor Altgeld, explaining the matter very briefly only to receive another and very long dispatch arguing about the relations of state and federal authority and still missing the point as completely as before. To this second telegram Mr. Cleveland sent, July 6th, a short response which ended the discussion. While I am still persuaded that I have neither transcended my authority or duty in the emergency that confronts us, it seems to me that in this hour of danger and public distress, discussion may well give way to active efforts on the part of all in authority to restore obedience to law and to protect life and property. President Cleveland's course in sending troops to Chicago against the protest of the state's executive and in using the army elsewhere to prevent obstruction of the mail routes was on the whole generally approved by public opinion and by Congress. A great deal of the comment made upon it was, however, based upon a misapprehension of the facts. Many persons then imagined, and many still believe, that the President put a new and bold construction upon his own powers, and that in consequence the functions of the executive were by his actions substantially enlarged. Such, however, was not the case. He was merely doing what he was empowered and even required to do by statute, a statute originally enacted under President Grant and aimed at the Ku Klux Klan. Hence, both the state's rights Democrats, like Governor Altgeld who condemned him, and the advocates of centralization who applauded him, did so with insufficient knowledge. If he deserved praise at all, it was not because of a new president which he established, for he established none but for his rude courage in using, through a sense of duty, his statutory powers in a way that was certain to intensify the hatred of him which had by this time come to be almost a religion in the western states. The serious constitutional question which the strike of 1894 brought into prominence concerned the judiciary rather than the executive. Government by injunction was a phrase that now came into general use. The Interstate Commerce Law of 1887 and the Sherman Antitrust Law of 1890 had both been framed with a view to checking the power of the corporations. Clever lawyers, however, had most ingeniously converted these two acts into instruments to protect the railway corporations against attack. If an engineer left his post, or if the crew of a train deserted it, this was held to be a conspiracy in restraint of commerce. A United States Circuit Court had issued a blanket injunction against all the employees of the Northern Pacific Road, forbidding them to strike. As to Mr. Debs and his associates, they had been enjoined from inciting men to strike. 
On December 14th, they were brought before Judge Woods in Chicago and sentenced, Debs to six months' imprisonment and the others to three months for contempt of court. This extension of the enjoining power was contrary to the whole spirit and practice of Anglo-Saxon jurisprudence as hitherto understood. By the new procedure, a judge defined in advance the nature of an offense and by injunction forbade the commission of it by certain specified persons. If they disobeyed the injunction, they were brought before the judge and fined or imprisoned, not directly for the act itself, but for contempt of court. In this way, the judge became also the accuser, and the accused lost the right of a jury trial. Many of the most conservative publicists in the East were alarmed by this alarming stretch of the judicial power. In the case of Mr. Debs, the principle at issue was admirably summed up in these words. If Debs has been violating the law, let him be indicted, tried by a jury, and punished. Let him not be made the victim of an untenable court order and deprived of his liberty entirely within the discretion of a judge. If the precedent now established is to stand, there is no limit to the power which the judiciary may establish over the citizen. Note 27, page 387. The action of Judge Woods in sentencing Debs was, however, sustained by a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court handed down on May 27, 1895, and he served his term in prison. Yet it is to be noted that the indictments for conspiracy found against him in legal form by a federal grand jury were afterwards dismissed. The report of a commission appointed by President Cleveland, note 28, page 388, to investigate the origin of the great strike was full of deep significance. This commission found in the Railway Managers Association an example of the persistent and shrewdly devised plans of corporations to overreach their limitations and to usurp indirectly powers and rights not contemplated in their charters. It found that neither the railway union nor any general combination of railway employees had been planned until the railway managers had set the example. In the judgment of the commission, the evils of intensive combination must in the end be met by government control of such corporations as have a public or quasi-public character. The report was widely read, and its unquestioned facts and dispassionate deductions impressed themselves upon the minds of thousands. More and more was it becoming evident that the proper form of resistance to the glacier-like power of consolidated capital was not through strikes or other efforts of voluntary associations, which tended too readily to promote disorder, but rather through the federal government itself, using all its latent and immense resources to protect its citizens impartially. End of chapter 8